0: Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on the Eden Podcast. My name is Daniel Latondo. I'm the lead pastor of Eden Church. Today, you're listening to Happy, a series about God's unlikely plan for a meaningful life. I hope this series helps you to live with greater hope for the future. Let's get started. All right, well, good morning. Thank you for being here today. It is awesome to have you. You made it the Sunday after Thanksgiving. This is our committed core right here. Uh, But it's great to have you. I'm excited that we get to continue in the series that we've been working through for the last several weeks called Happy. And when we started this series, we did so with the deep-seated conviction that despite our very best efforts to create a meaningful life through our careers or through relationships or friendships or through service to others, there are many of us that are still going to bed. And at the end of the day, we are asking the question, is there more to life? Than this, Is there more to life than this? There are some of us who, despite what we've experienced in this life, are still wondering if we were meant to live for something more. Some of you may remember a number of years ago, there was a movie that came out called The Pursuit of Happiness. It was an amazing movie. Amazing movie. But when I think about what people in our culture really long for, I think that is what we are pursuing. We are pursuing Happiness. Now, you may define that in different ways, but ultimately, most people in our culture are longing to live a meaningful, fulfilled, purposeful life. And so because of that, we're going to continue studying the book that we've been working through for the last few weeks. And we've been looking at the particular passages referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Because at its core, the Sermon on the Mount is a message about the unlikely path to a meaningful life the unlikely path to a meaningful life. And so today we're going to be reading out of the New Testament. This is the second half of the Bible, and it's the compilation of works that were documenting the events that happened in the first century that were explaining the life of Jesus and the emergence and development of the early church community. And so we're going to be reading out of one of the four mini biographies located in the New Testament. The one written by a man named Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' closest companions during his time here on Earth. He was part of the twelve apostles group. So if you have your Bibles, turn or scroll to Matthew chapter five, verse forty-three through forty-eight. Matthew 5, 43 through forty-eight. And if you don't, don't worry, because we're going to be posting all of the sentences here up on the screen. So the Sermon on the Mount happens really at a tipping point in Jesus' ministry. It's really where it begins to gain momentum and gain some traction. And it was on this occasion where people had traveled from all over the region to the shores of Galilee to see what Jesus was doing. And not just from the surrounding regions around Galilee, but also some of the surrounding regions of Israel. And so there were many people who had traveled for days just to be a part of what was happening on the seashore this day. Some groups were there because they were hopeful that what Jesus was offering might actually add value to their lives. There was some desperation in some of these groups. But there's a whole other group of people that came just because they were interested in seeing for themselves what they heard about this man named Jesus. And so we're told that Jesus positions himself on the hillside and he begins to teach about a higher order of living, he begins to talk about a different type of morality. And part of what he talks about in the opening verses or the opening of the Sermon on the Mount is really what it means to live a blessed life. We actually call this section of the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitude, and it comes from the Latin phrase Beatuto, which means to be in a state of blessedness. And over and over again, he begins to describe what this looks like in someone's life. Then we talked about what it means to be the salt in the light, light of the earth as followers of Jesus. Last week... We talked about how Jesus elevated God's word in this world, and we saw over and over again that he said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but actually I came to fulfill it. And I think so much of why Jesus was elevating his perspective on the Bible last week was because of what he was about to say in the week's preceding or in the preceding statements. He was really preparing his audience for what he was about to teach them, because from this point forward... We see that Jesus goes through a series of challenges, and he's challenging the way that many of the people in his audience understood the teachings of the law and the prophets. He believes that in some ways they have grabbed hold of this perverted translation, this perverted interpretation of what the law actually taught. And so this morning we're going to look at one of those teachings, and we're going to learn about God's unordinary love. Now, there are about five of these teachings in total. I did, I said ten. I said ten with my fingers and I said five with my mouth. Five of these teachings uh, that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But I thought that this teaching about loving our enemies is uniquely significant in our day and age. I don't know about you, but I feel like every time I go on social media, I am more and more convinced that This, that we are living in one of the most divided and divisive cultures and generations that have ever existed. Now, I'm not saying it is the most divided or the most divisive, but I feel like almost everything I see on someone who is a social, an avid social media poster are these divisive statements, these exclusive statements about their tribe compared to another tribe. And so I thought it would be appropriate if we talked about what it meant to have the unordinary type of love that God has so let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 it says you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you If you remember the last few verses of the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus said that if you want to experience the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to be better than the righteousness of the Pharisees. In other words, he was saying your moral standard has to be higher than that of the moral standard of the Pharisees. And what he was making a case against was the fact that the Pharisees were people who knew how to conform their lives outwardly but had no transformation inwardly that they were people who knew how to follow the laws and follow the rules and follow the regulations, but there had actually been no spiritual transformation within their hearts. They were following the rules, but their hearts were far from God. To them, it was about external conformity. They knew how to look the part. They knew how to use the right verses on social media. Did you guys know something I realized recently, that there are ways that you can take pictures of yourself that make you look better than you really are on social media. Have you ever had that experience where like you see someone and they look totally different on social media than they do in real person? And this is not an attack on any, any group of people, but I think that it is maybe, I think some of the ladies have really perfected this craft. Now, I know how to do it myself and I didn't realize it was a thing, but I realized that when I take pictures, I have like this automatic Thing where I suck in my gut and I puff out my chest. And then I look at the picture, I'm like, actually, I was a lot more healthy in that season of life than I remember being. But there are ways that we can sort of position ourselves to look better than we really are. And that was the skill set of a Pharisee, that they knew how to position themselves better than they actually were. And so Jesus is referring to this law that was common. He says, you have heard it said, And he's talking really about pop wisdom, pop culture wisdom. And he says, the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And one of the reasons why Jesus is beginning to address this particular statement is because he knew that this is not actually what the law taught. The law actually taught in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, it says, Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you'll not be able to, you'll not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Nowhere in this passage does it say to hate your enemies. But somehow over time, the culture began to redefine this law to make it fit their sort of moral compass. And so Jesus helps to redefine their redefinition of the law And so he begins to set out the expectation, and really the first part of what Jesus said seems to make a lot of sense to us. But the second part, I think, is the hard part. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think we get that. But the second half of the statement is part of what has made Christianity so radical for the last 2,000 years, because he says, love your enemies. I wonder if people in the audience that day had ever heard of such a teaching. To love those who hate you. Love your enemies. There are three words in the Greek that the Bible typically translates into love. The first word is eros, and it means an erotic form of love, a romantic type of love, a sexual type of love. The second is phileo. It's a brotherly love, and it's where we get the name of the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's it's phileo love. And the third type of love is agape. This is God's love, his unconditional love, a relentless type of love, a limitless type of love. And Jesus uses agape when he's saying love your enemies. He's saying agape your enemies. To love them without condition, to love them in your heart regardless of their actions or behaviors, love without limitation. And I think that maybe there are some of us right now sort of imagining in our minds those people who we might identify as enemies in our life. People in our life that are frustrating, perhaps people in our life that are toxic or unhealthy. And some of you are thinking, I'm kind of upset that God would ask me to love those people. Because in our minds, they are the type of people that we don't think deserve our love. But I also love that the type of person that Jesus is telling them to love are not people who have offended his audience, but people who have persecuted his audience. Persecution means to be the subject of systematic harassment and attack due to one's personal religious beliefs. Jesus is saying, love these people unconditionally. Love them. And not only does he tell them, to love these people, but he's telling them to pray for them. Act in love toward them. Prayer is this thing that we do when we intercede on someone else's behalf. And so Jesus is saying intercede on their behalf. Pray for them. Pray for their well-being. Pray for their development. Pray for their good. Pray for their hearts to love and follow God. And I wonder if today there are some of us who have come into the room this morning where we have these people in our lives that are difficult to live with. There are people that if we had the choice, we would choose not to see them on a regular basis. But Jesus is telling you to pray for those people. And the reason why Jesus is telling you to pray for your enemies because he knows that typically we respond in two ways to our enemies. We either hate them or we will love them. And what I found out is that when you hate someone, it produces bitterness in your heart. And someone once said that bitterness is like drinking poison expecting it to kill your enemy. But in fact, what it really does is it eats you up from the inside out Bitterness is the thing that causes you to die inside. It steals your joy. It steals your peace. It steals your mind space. And so Jesus is giving us a tool to help us not to hate people but to love them because he knows that love will actually set you free. And sometimes it is not enough just to tell yourself to love someone. But Jesus is giving you a tool to help you get to that point in your life where you can love those people that are your enemies. I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for someone that you are really, really angry at, but it makes it really difficult to pray for their well-being, but also to hate them in your heart. I think that our prayers for people that we consider our enemy really it's part of a process I think that it might sound something like this at first God if you want to help them go for it it's up to you then maybe it sounds like God I'm about to say words that I don't mean but I just want you to know that I know that I don't mean it but there will be a point that if you are committed to praying for people who you consider your enemy that your heart will slowly begin to shift prayer after prayer you'll almost start to believe what you're praying. And you'll begin to see and have a heart for them the way that God has a heart for them. That even while in their attack against you, you still can see the value of their life. And no matter how angry you are, no matter how much hatred you may have toward this person, if you begin to pray for them, your heart will shift. And I don't think that it happens overnight. I don't think that it, for some of us, may happen in a week or a month or a year. But if you are committed to the practice of praying for someone who you consider your enemy, your heart will begin to shift little by little. But why does Jesus ask us to do this? He tells us in verse 45. He says, "...in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For He gives us His sunlight to both the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike." In other words, he's saying this is part of what it means to follow me. I think that some branding of Christianity will make it easy to follow Jesus because most of the time when we talk about following Jesus, we lead with the benefits, right? We talk about the good things, the easy things, the beneficial parts of following Jesus. And if you ever talk to a marketing or advertising company, that is always what they tell you to lead with, lead with the benefits, Following Jesus will give you hope when you feel hopeless. He will give you peace in the midst of chaos. It's all true. Who doesn't want that? But where I think a lot of people get tripped up is when you begin to tell them the cost of following Jesus. That Jesus someday is going to ask for you to give up your life to follow Him. Sometimes, Jesus may ask you to act in an unnatural way where your natural response is to attack someone who has attacked you, but instead he is telling, them, telling you to love them. When someone has gossiped about you, he's going to tell you to speak well about them. When they have hurt you, he's going to ask you to bless them. When they have lied about you, he's going to ask you to not act in like manner. But it is through this cost that you find the reward. It is through the sacrifice that you find the value of faith. It is when you are acting like a true child of God that, you're, that you experience the type of life that God has always envisioned for you. And he says that if you do this, it is a sign that my spirit is in you. He says you are identifying with my heart to love those who hate you. And then he begins to reason with them in verse 46. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even the corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. He's saying there has to be this transformation in your life. The assumption is that as a follower of Jesus, you would be different. He's saying that if your love for others only extends to people who love you, what makes your life any different? I think this is one of the greatest dangers in the church today, is that people who have claimed to have found Jesus, and yet there is nothing about their life that has changed as a result of it. And if there is nothing that has changed about our life when we claim to follow Jesus, why would that look appealing to anybody else? I read a book a number of years ago. The title of the book was, I like Jesus, but not the church. Mahatma Gandhi made this really powerful statement. He says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is really a message that is reframing the values of this audience. It was a call to be different. Jesus is saying, look at the pattern of your culture and be different. Not just to wear different clothes or to listen to different music or to be externally different, but in our moral character. Would you be different? Would you stand out? Would you be unique? It's funny how sometimes we like to claim to be different as Christians, but sometimes we act in the same way as everyone else. I remember when we were first starting the church, there was a pastor in the area. I reached out to him, and I'd reach out to a number of pastors. And, um, and I would just kind of say, hey, I'm Daniel. I'm new in the area. I'd love to get to know you, and maybe we can work together as we're in ministry together. And this one pastor, and I will just say that this was a very unique case because most every other pastor welcomed me with open arms. But I remember he, I told him, I said, this is where we're planting And he said, I don't think that you should plant there. He said, I'm from the business world, and we're all going after the same piece of pie. And I thought to myself, what on earth could he mean by that? Because when we look at God's economy, it is not like we are competing with one another, because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and we are here not to reach people from other churches, but to reach people who are far from Jesus and who have no home and have no community. And then a few weeks ago, I saw on social media, it was a pastor from a church, and they have this in every single one of their bulletin inserts. There's a list of churches in the area that said, if our church is not for you, here's a number of other good churches right around the block that I know you would love. And so I love that mentality. And to me, that speaks of the heart of Christianity, that we are not in competition with one another, yet we are cheering each other on. We are for what God has for other churches. But sometimes what God has done in us, or or maybe when we become followers of Jesus, it doesn't look very different than when we first started. In the Old Testament, this is referred to as being holy. It is meant to be set apart To be morally and spiritually distinct within your culture. And I believe that when we talk about the pursuit of happiness, we are in some ways really talking about the pursuit of holiness. Pursuing what God has for us, unique to his calling. And this always happens when we live according to God's plan for our lives. That we will find true happiness. Jesus sort of leaves us with this final thought. In verse 48, he says, But you are to be perfect even... As your Father in heaven is perfect. If you were here with us last week, you may have heard me make this statement. I said, Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't expect you to be perfect? And when I read this verse this week, I thought, Should I leave verse 48 out in light of what I said last week? Because there is truth to that, right? God doesn't expect you to be perfect. Like He provided a way knowing that we would sin and that we would we would step outside of his perfect will for our lives. But when you look at this verse, when you look at the actual Greek, the word that it uses the base the root word is teleos. And that word means completion. And so what G what it is longing for is not perfection, moral perfection. That's not the expectation. But he hopes that we would be complete in the same way that God is complete. And a fundamental part of our completion as followers of Jesus is possessing that unnormal, that unordinary type of love that God has for the world. He says, I want you to be complete as God is complete. And part of that is loving our enemies. It is to be complete in our character. I think that this is a really difficult thing for us to demonstrate because it goes so much against the grain of our natural response to when people seek to harm us, our response is to take revenge. And I really think that there are some things that are difficult for us to demonstrate if we've never experienced them in our own lives. If we've never experienced the type of love where someone receives us back after we've been foolish or after we've attacked them or after we've lied to them, if we've never experienced the type of love that embraces us despite those things, it is going to be hard for us to demonstrate that type of love to other people. But this is where God comes in. Because this is the type of love That God has for every single one of us. It is the type of love that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on the cross for those sins. It is the type of love where as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he simultaneously asked God to forgive those who were nailing, forgive those people who were nailing him to the cross. It is the type of love that despite the evil in our hearts, God could still see extreme value in our life. A few weeks ago, we started this series with the conviction that despite our best best efforts to have a meaningful and purposeful life, there are so many of us that are still wondering if there is more to life than this. And the answer is yes. And so many of us in the room have pursued happiness through our careers. We have pursued happiness or meaning through our families and through our relationships. But someone once said that there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart that will only feel complete when we find rest in Him. But it is only in the receiving of that love that we understand the fullness and the purpose and the completion of our lives. It's only in that love that if we experience God's love, are we able to demonstrate that type of love to someone else. I've shared this before, but this is a personal illustration of, of this truth in my life. When I was 18 years old, I had moved to Bakersfield to wrestle in college, and shortly after I moved, I, uh, it was in about six months after I moved to Bakersfield, I received news that my dad had been murdered. And I remember how difficult this entire process was. Um, I remember getting a phone call. And I remember sort of the distraught nature of my response in that moment. I, I remember being broken down. And then um, in the coming weeks, I dealt with this tension in my heart, that I knew as a follower of Jesus, God had called us to forgive people of the pain that they caused us. And I had never experienced an enemy in my life the way that I saw this person who murdered my father, the way that I saw them as an enemy. And so I knew that God was calling me to forgive this person, but somehow in my heart, I didn't have the desire or the emotion or the feeling to forgive them. And then a few, months went, a few months went by, and I remember digging into that, that process of, of healing. And I remember coming to this point in my life where I could verbally say that I had forgiven this person. And then about a year after the murder, we went to trial. And I remember sitting in the courtroom that day seeing this person for the first time, and all those emotions of hatred filled my heart again when I thought I had forgiven them. And I remember sort of the tension or the insight that I gained as a result of this process because I learned that forgiveness really isn't a one-time decision. It's almost at every season you forgive that person for taking from you what wasn't theirs. But then I remember constantly this one thought that kept re-entering my mind as I would battle with this idea of forgiveness for this person. And it was that God had forgiven me of so much that no matter how evil I acted toward God or how much pain I had caused God, He still lovingly and openly and willingly received me into His arms because He never lost sight of the value that I had in Him. And I remember thinking that as much evil as this person had perpetrated toward my family, that God still valued his life. And that was a reality that I could not pull myself from. As much as in my heart I hated this person, I knew that God valued and loved them so much. And it was that one truth that sort of dug into my heart that, that I couldn't quite rid my heart of, that over time allowed for me to not only forgive them, but to begin praying for them and hoping that God would someday restore their life that they would have a life that honors God because I knew that the life he was living was not the life that God had for him and it really wasn't the life that he wanted for himself. And I remember someone told me this really great insight that I carry with me everywhere I go, every time I find that I have a disagreement with someone else or maybe I have a different ideology than someone else. And what I believe about this person is that most people are really not our enemies. Most of the time, they have just been convinced of a lie. A lie about a value that they think is high, but is really not. And so that's the challenge for us this week. Is how do we begin to love those people in our lives that maybe are toxic or unhealthy or hurtful, or people who we might consider our enemies? How do we love them? And can we push ourselves to that point to begin praying for those people so that we can love them, so that God can begin to take away the hate in our heart and turn it into love? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the great and wonderful love that you have for us God, we pray that you would be with us this week. Lord, as we go about our day, as we engage in our routine, that, Lord, you would begin to shift our hearts toward people who we may identify as enemies in our life, people who have hurt us, that we would begin to embrace the radical type of love that you have had for us. No matter what people have done, no matter how they've hurt us, God, will you begin to transform our hearts so that we would not succumb to bitterness that steals joy, to succumb to the pain that is a result of hatred, but God, that we would be freed by the love that you have for us and that we would demonstrate that to others in our life. God, I pray that if there is anyone in the room today that is struggling with bitterness. That as we've been talking this morning, they've identified enemies in their life. Lord, that you would give them the power and the strength to begin to release the bitterness, to give away the bitterness so that they would experience the type of life that you have for them. God, we thank you for what you're doing in this community. We're thankful for the great and wonderful love. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.